it's another edition of Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. We are talking Chicago Cubs baseball as we record this episode number 35. It is September 9th, 2021 with Jeremy Spector and Randall J. Sanders. I'm Ronan O'Shea. We're really excited to talk Cubs baseball with you all today because the Cubs are playing very good baseball. Winners of eight of their last nine. We want to talk about this fruitful homestand, a couple of wins over Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and a couple of emotional games coming up this weekend. Chris Bryant returning to Wrigley Field. Lots of thoughts on that. A busy week for Major League Baseball. Derek Jeter and Larry Walker inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. We'll share some memories, some thoughts on that, on two great players that were a big part of our childhoods growing up in grading to love this great sport of baseball. We will continue our ballad of the 2001 Chicago Cubs. Guys, today we're talking Sammy Sosa. I've got some great stats. I've pulled some things about his memorable season, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you all about it. Uh, but we're here tonight. You can find us on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. Send us your thoughts, show ideas, criticisms, lob them. We'd love to get them. Uh, but Jeremy, what's good for you tonight? Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, Cubs are playing really good baseball. I mean, you know, as good as they possibly can, probably, you know, some close games, but whatever you win nine out of 11. Uh, so yeah, so I'm doing pretty good there. I'm, I'm feeling up, feeling happy. So I'm, I'm all excited. We're making the most of the final couple of weeks here of this major league baseball season. Randall, it, it felt personal for you here. A couple of wins against Cincinnati. I know you're in a good mood with how this homestand has gone. Yeah, you know, it's you always want to beat Pittsburgh. I, you know, draft position is important, but not losing to Pittsburgh and that roster of theirs is also important. And uh, winning against Cincinnati in September, the, the shoe's been on the other foot a couple times in memory where a, a bad Reds team has come in and inconvenienced a Cubs team fighting for their playoff life. Uh, it, it seemed familiar, but flipped a little bit. And we'll probably get into that a little, yeah. little later on. It's good, though. And to your point, Jeremy, it's real fun right now. The Cubs are playing competitive ball. They had a bunch of walk-off wins. And we were talking about Frank Schwindel last week. Frank the Tank, National League Player of the Week award goes to Frank Schwindel. Five home runs, 12 driven in. And how about this, Jeremy? Four consecutive game-winning runs batted in. He's just on a tear right now. This is so much fun to watch Frank the Tank doing this as a 29-year-old rookie. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, like a month ago or a little more than a month ago on the, at the trade deadline, you know, we all had barely even heard of Frank Schwindel. I was ironically rooting for him there in Colorado, shouting his name every time he comes to the bat. I, bat, I was very excited to see just Frank Schwindel, just just Frank Schwindel. And what has Frank Schwindel done? He's just killing the ball. I mean, I never thought he I was just up there, you know, rooting for Frank, but I never thought he'd be National League Rookie of the Month, National League Player of the Week. Every not just rookies, uh, you know, just just the, a grand slam to win the game the other day after having the game winning uh, walk off hit. So like he's sliding into first base to get that hit it's just been incredible and and it's just been fun and enjoyable and hey like frank the tank you know you go do your thing who he probably never thought he'd ever get a shot like this 29 years old go out there and just play baseball and, and kick ass and i'm loving every minute of it it's it's been delightful to watch him you know jeremy said a guy who came more or less out of nowhere a long time in the minor leagues, a little bit of time in the major leagues with Kansas City and Oakland. You know, I, I don't think he ever envisioned that he would have T-shirts uh, with his name and his nickname on them 
floating around Chicago other than family members. But like you said earlier, that's what you have to do at the tail end of a lost season like this. You have to make the best of it. And it helps when a guy comes out of nowhere and just completely lights everything on fire. Yeah. And, and just to point out as well, Frank Schwindel in this month, he's only played one month of baseball. He has, he's got like more war than Anthony Rizzo at yeah. first base by like a half a, a game. Like he's up at like 1.5, 1.6. Anthony's at one in, in a Cubs uniform talking about. So Frank Schwindel's been killing it. He's one like the three, four best players on this or probably four or five best players on this team right now in terms of war uh, for the whole season out of any players wore a Cubs uniform this season, what they've done in the Cubs uniform, Frank Trudell is right up there and he's only played like 35 games, which kind of makes you think about last year. You know, that's almost half of the season last year. Frank Trudell, if he was doing this last year, he'd be in the MVP talks. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. You know, I, I was struck by a comment that Wilson Contreras said earlier this week. And by the way, welcome back, Wilson Contreras. How nice it is to see him back in a Cubs uniform. Um, but he was asked about getting back to the team. And he said he was really looking forward to it, that there's guys right now playing really good baseball. And guys that this is kind of their first chance or their first real opportunity to make a statement in the game. He wanted to be a part of that. He, he said he wanted to be a mentor to those guys, you know, get involved. One, I'm way on the Wilson Contreras extension bandwagon. Like, let's lock that up this offseason to make sure he's a Cub for most of the rest of his career. But it's a good point. What you're seeing Schwindel doing, what Patrick Wisdom is doing, even though he's slowed a bit of late. Uh, Rafael Ortega, these guys are out there contributing and winning Major League Baseball games. And yeah, are the Pirates a good team? No, they're not. It doesn't matter. They're winning Major League Baseball games. And Frank Schwindel's starting to get national attention for his accomplishments. So it's fun to see guys like Wilson, who've been through the best of highs with this franchise, embrace this sort of rebuild or embrace playing with these players. And it's been a lot of entertaining baseball to watch the last week or so. And I imagine for a guy like Wilson, you know, he probably thought, you know, it's July 31st, this, this team's going nowhere. They got off to a 12-game losing streak, whatever. You know, it, it probably for him, it was like, okay, this is going to suck. He got hurt. He's probably like, I'm not really trying to make my way back. Then he sees these guys go off, 9 of 11, you know, whatever. They're playing winning baseball. He probably gets a little more of a pep in his step. He's like, okay, there's actually going to be some fun out here. We can actually play some winning games. He's probably, you know, you know, you see what Jason Hayward did last night. These are probably guys that weren't really too excited to really play the rest of this season. And, you know, maybe they can go off a little bit too. Ian Happ is just having an absolutely ridiculous August. It would have been nice if he would have done this in June, you know, when the Cubs were actually in the hunt, but you know, I'm not, I'm going to still take it. And Ian Happ is in like two weeks. He's like brought his OPS up over a hundred points. It's incredible, uh, especially for this far into the season. So seeing some of these guys that were, you know, regulars on the team that you thought that maybe, you know, they'd just be going through the motions towards the end of the year, not really. It's probably sparked a little bit of them as well. I think Ian has uh, sort of played himself out of the non-tender too. Uh, there's still time here. I don't think that decision is totally made, but yeah. a strong finish from him obviously makes a compelling case to give him that contract, extend it for next year. And then the question is going to be, well, where is he going to play? What's going to be the natural fit for him? That's going to depend on a variety of factors. But given the horrific first three or four months of the season that he's had. It's so welcome to see Ian doing it, doing it from both sides of the plate. He's hitting the ball out of the ballpark from the right side of the plate too. So very, very encouraging. And we've talked about this countless times in the show. We are Ian Happ fans. We are pulling for Ian Happ. We want to see it work out for him when he's on. He's a very fun player to watch. He runs the base as well. He's got power. It's fun to see what he's been doing and it's encouraging. Maybe this is what he needs. 
send him into the off season with a good finish. Maybe he puts it together for next year. Maybe next season, just tell him in April that it's September <laughs> and see what happens or March. Uh, he, cause Brandon, you always point out he's good in spring training. Uh, but the one thing I, they, they showed, um, a graphic the other day on a marquee where they showed his, uh, his ground ball rate and his yeah. slugging percentage. And you can see when he's hitting the ball a lot on the ground, his slugging percentage is really down. But when he's hitting the ball in the air, his slugging percentage is really high, which is generally true for most players. But for Ian Happ, you know, he hits the ball. He'd been hitting the ball pretty hard. So he's really got to focus on his launch angle, I think a little bit. And when he's hitting in the air, he's, a pretty solid player. And, and I think, and you know, there were questions about him being non-tender in the off season. I always thought that was pretty unlikely. I mean, I wasn't going to say it was a for certain thing, but I would like, you know, probably give a 90, 95% chance. He was going to come back. I think he's pretty much played himself out of those questions. I, I think I'd be very surprised unless he just, if, if they did not tender him a contract in the off season. Yeah. I don't think him being non-tendered. I don't think it was ever really on the table, but I think, his last his last few weeks have taken it off the table completely. Ronan, you've mentioned this before. You wonder if, given his struggles hitting right-handed this season and given his recent success hitting left-handed, you wonder if maybe this offseason he and maybe next spring he experiments with dropping switch hitting. He's been a much stronger hitter from the left side of the plate. We know his struggles as a right-handed hitter. So far, most of his success in this hot streak have come as a, uh, a left-handed batter. And you wonder if that's something he tries in an effort to – not have another season where he has a great spring and then he craters in April and he stays up and down all the way until September when the season is essentially over, you know, ball players, uh, he's not a rookie anymore. He's, he's been in the round five seasons at this point, ball players will try things like that to try and get some level of consistency. And that's one, something you wonder if he gives some thought to, this offseason, something he tries maybe next spring. I would not necessarily mind seeing that because I think that might help him. You know, I imagine being a switch hitter, you kind of have to have, you kind of have to think of yourself as two different hitters, two different swings, two different approaches. Pitchers are going to pitch you differently as a left-handed batter versus a right-handed batter. You wonder if he tries batting solely left-handed just to simplify things and see if he can find some level of consistency going into next season. I, I think there's, you know, like you said, a little bit of an argument there for um, agreeing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you a little bit on, uh, you know, the, the, to thinking of yourself as two different hitters, uh, you know, having to not to have two different swings really pull out of the bag, um, you know, as a, you have to work on your right hand swing, you have to work on your left hand swing. So, yeah, I can understand that if you're trying to get consistency on the, on the flip side of that, I, I just can't imagine Ian Happ being um, that all that good, like performing all that much better as a left handed hitter against left handed pitching. I imagine he's probably not going to succeed either way. So I would just think whichever one Ian feels most comfortable with, I would be okay with him doing. I, I think you're both on the money with that. I, I'd love to see, though, what he looks like as a left-handed batter against a left-handed pitcher. Um, he knows what it is. I'm sure the coaching staff has seen enough to keep him as a switch hitter, but it will be a storyline going into the offseason, and it's something that people are going to be asking Ian Happ about here in September and then into spring training next year. Uh, Cubs take all four from Pittsburgh. It started with that crazy play. Wilmer Defoe dropping the pop fly on the infield. And Randall just flashbacks to a couple years ago. It seems like every couple of years, a Pirates 
defender stumbles in the grass or loses the ball in, well, against the moon. I don't know what happened there in the night game, but a funny defensive play. And again, the Cubs get to walk off the Pirates. That was a good one. That was a that, lot of fun. That was Gregory Polanco, of course, no longer with the Pirates. They finally cut ties with their struggling right fielder. He signed a minor league deal with Toronto. I don't believe he's with them in the major leagues right now. But you, you could see the spirit of Gregory Polanco came down and inhabited Wilmer Defoe as that that pop fly came in towards second base he missed it completely and it well you know not completely the same but you can't help but remember it in in a very similar situation uh and that's what the pirates do they they make you feel better about yourself and they're good for providing entertainment so i appreciate that from wilmer defoe and another another again remembering the past here wilmer defoe uh botched a pretty easy ground ball to second uh, in that fateful uh, late season game against the Nationals, wherein David Bodie did what he's probably best known for at this point and hit that game ending grand slam. That inning uh, progressed as it did because Defoe botched a pretty easy ground ball to second base. So at this point, Defoe may just want to go sign with an AL team minor league contract just so he doesn't have to play defense at Wrigley anymore because it, it seems like it, at the most notable of times, it comes up poorly for him. And and not just Defoe, uh... The next day, uh, I'm not, or it was either next day or the day after that, when the Cubs came back in the ninth, there was a ball hit out to right field to Ben Gamble that Ben Gamble probably should have caught as well. And he made a weird dive at it and it just missed the ball. And I'm not sure if he lost in the lights or what happened there. But so there's really like two games where the Pirates kind of gave it away in the ninth. That balls that should have been caught. And Ronan, you, you took last week off from giving Zach Zaidman career advice. I was listening to that ninth inning wherein the Cubs did walk off the Pirates. Zaidman was on the call that day as Pat Hughes had a, a scheduled day off. And the, the fly balls that put, brought the Cubs within a run and tied the game, I had no idea what was going on because Zaidman was just completely incapable of describing it accurately. He, he told me where the Rivas RBI single was he said it was in the gap he made it sound like it had gone all the way to the wall and the ball that gamel couldn't come up with it just completely lost and you know i have other resources for finding out what exactly happened in the game if zaidman were my sole resource i'd have thought rivas had tied it on a on a, a, a ball into the gap it, it, there you have one job as a radio baseball play-by-play -play man and that's accurately describe what's going on in the field he, he can't do that and that's a that's a bit of an issue it's tough. And I've been getting in the habit here. MLB TV's, I think, done a better job this year of syncing up the radio feed to the video feed. So I found myself um, when certain broadcasters are calling Cubs games and I go, eh, I don't want to hear this person tonight or that person tonight. I'll put Pat on. The way my heart sinks when I put on that radio broadcast and it's Zaidman instead of Pat for the full game, it's like, ah, oh, man, now what do I do? Uh, put a record on and watch the game on mute is and what I end up having to do most of the time. But it's frustrating because there should be more pride in your broadcasts on TV and on the radio. And it's interesting to me that a, a franchise doesn't put a little bit more thought into that. Bruce Levine broadcasting Cubs games in 2021 is completely inexcusable. It's embarrassing for a major league team, let alone the Chicago Cubs to be doing that. And it's sad not to get, bring the White Sox into this, but it's tough listening to a, a great broadcaster like Len Casper. And I've been listening to White Sox games on the radio and then turn over and hear Zaidman doing his thing on Cubs ball. So maybe it can get better. And I'll say this too, and I'm not criticizing Doug Glanville because I love Doug Glanville. Tough time with the play-by-play. 
It was great that he filled in. It was a very difficult situation, but it was a little bit tough. I'm glad Boog and JD were able to get back in. I think Glanville adds a lot uh, as an analyst and as somebody who's been around this sport and played at Wrigley, but it was good to hear Boog get back on the play-by-play. And how, how surreal was that? wherein you you had basically your, your openers on the broadcast starting for your your would-be starting pitcher because uh, Boog Shambi and Jim Deshays were awaiting their COVID tests. How surreal is that, that they jump in mid-broadcast because those tests came back negative and they said, okay, we're, we're clear to hop in the booth. You know, we, we talked a lot uh, about how odd last season was with many of its idiosyncrasies this season of course has progressed a little more normally broadcasters are traveling a little bit more if they can get there by road Uh, obviously ballparks are full again but still how how weird is it that the broadcaster your your would-be intended broadcast team jumps in uh, partway through the first inning because they were awaiting their covid tests probably in no small part because your manager and your general manager, your team president tested positive the night before. And again, just one of those idiosyncrasies we will remember uh, hopefully in the future when this pandemic is a memory, how it affected, you know, it affected a lot more important things than this, but how it affected this year's major league baseball season. uh, Definitely because of uh, Jed and uh, Ross, I think they had dinner together at Boogan. Uh, JD and either Jed or David or I don't remember which one. So they were like close contacts and it was very surreal because because JD came like in the middle of the first yep. batter. So like it wasn't just mid game. It was like mid at bat and uh, Boog just kind of came in or, as well. So I, I kind of feel bad for Doug Glanville being put into that spot where he probably, yep. you know, just minutes before almost it seemed like the game where he's he, he, they're like, oh, can you, you know, take over, call a game and not just call a game, do some play by play, which he's probably never done in his life. So it is a little bit of a difficult spot. But, yeah, I understand that Doug Glanville is not your, the guy you want out there calling play by play. No, no. I'll say, too, I was surprised because I, I thought I saw a tweet or maybe it was a text message from one of you guys. Um, and I, I believe it had referenced that Cole Wright yeah. was going to be calling the game with Glanville. So I put it on sort of expecting and I was eager to hear that. Actually, I've seen Cole Wright as a studio analyst. I was curious, okay, how does he handle play-by-play? But he was nowhere to be seen, so I don't know if he couldn't get over from the studio. I I don't know the circumstances of that, Um, but it it was sort of a moment of levity getting Boog and getting JD back onto the broadcast, and they handled it like pros. It was a lot of fun to listen to that, and uh, I'm so ready for us to get to a point here as a country and a planet that we can get past these tests and sort of get back to normalcy. I think we're ways off from that uh, still at this point, but uh, they did a nice job at the broadcast and uh, it's a lot more fun to watch these games when the Cubs are playing pretty good baseball. And that's what they did. So they take all four from Pittsburgh. Then Cincinnati comes in. This is a team that's right in the middle of a wild card hunt. They are right on the cusp of a playoff appearance. What do the Cubs do? They take two of three from Cincinnati and they do it in dramatic fashion last night. Jason Hayward, for all the struggles he's had this season and throughout his time here in Chicago, what a great moment last night. A towering three-run shot off the video board in right field. Cubs walk off Cincinnati. They win the series. They're cruising on this homestand. And for a guy like Hayward, uh, Jeremy, who has struggled offensively after showing some encouraging things last season, big regression this year. Nice to see him get in a moment like that and always nice to beat the Reds in dramatic fashion. Yeah, it's nice to see Jason get a moment. Uh, you know, Randall and I saw Jason get a moment about four years ago where he he hit a walk-off homer against the Phillies. That was pretty cool on my birthday. Uh, walk-off Grand Slam, I should say. Um, so that was pretty cool. So, yeah, Jason, 
you know, he's actually like, I, you know, the first, first two years were awful here. Obviously, we're, I, we've all saw it. We all know it. Um, he did have the speech, but they were not good. And then I kind of performed like decently. He didn't he's never lived up to his contract, but he was not like, you know, uh, as much of a killer as he was his first two years. He could give you a little bit of an average offense. He was playing a decent outfield. And even last year in the two months, he he actually was one of the Cubs better hitters, uh, him in half. But as I showed at Frank Fidel, you know, 60 as 60 games is not really that much. Uh, and then unfortunately, he's been terrible this year. He's been gone back to kind of being the player he was the first two years he was here. So but it's nice for a guy. I've never hated Jason. I've always liked Jason. I know a lot of people get on him, big contract, whatever. But I like seeing Jason perform well. And when he hits home runs, he can crank the ball. I mean, he's a big yeah. dude, 6'6", 230 pounds, 40 pounds, whatever. So I always enjoy seeing Jason do well. Well, a big home run, no doubt about it. You talk about the contract, eight years, $184 million. That was signed prior to 2016. Of course, he was a Cardinal for the 2015 season. The next two years, though, Randall, interesting. Next year number that you like 22 million dollars owed to jason hayward another 22 million in 2023 where does he fit into the plans here going into next year i find it hard to believe that you want to put together a opening day lineup with jason hayward as your starting right fielder well there's a lot of different ways that this could go and i think the harshest and most i think the best decision for the team the harshest decision for the team really would be to get him off the team, designate him for assignment. I don't personally think that's going to happen. I think um, probably Hoyer probably has more respect for Hayward than to do this to him, even if he feels like it might be best for the team. But you, you might be better off paying Hayward to not play for the Cubs. You have a lot of outfielders to whom you'd like to give looks. You have Brennan Davis, who's going to be here sooner than later. Hermosillo, uh, who we'll talk about later, I think has shown that he deserves at least to be in the discussion Going forward, Hap, of course, is going to need a place to play, and he profiles a lot better as a corner outfielder than he does a center fielder. Objectively, it might, it would be best for the team if you, you get rid of Hayward, you designate him for assignment, and you simply eat the remaining money. Again, I don't think they will do that. I think the contract will dictate that they will keep him uh, around and possibly use him as a defensive replacement, a bench guy. Maybe you get him in there against certain right-handed pitchers or somebody needs a day off. You know, I, I agree with you. I don't think a successful Cubs team in 2022, if there is such a thing, involves Jason Hayward getting starters at bats in right field. And, you know, that's difficult to do when the guy's making as much money as he is. But at some point you have to say what's best for the team, completely independent of the money he is set to make. And what's best for the team is Jason Hayward playing sparingly if he's still on the team. And that's, you know, a difficult decision to make. We know that David Ross has all the history in the world with Jason Hayward. He was on the Braves when Hayward came up. Uh, we know that, you know, Hoyer has all the respect in the world for Hayward. We know his teammates have all the respect in the world for Hayward, for what he did uh, in the clubhouse, what he does in the clubhouse. And that's where, that's where front offices, that's where managers have to make hard decisions. How do you take a guy who's making a lot of money on the, on the part of the front office? How do you take a guy who is a veteran and whom you have all the respect in the world for as the manager? And how do you either get him off the team or how do you sit him? And that's why I'm glad that I'm not in the front office. That's why I'm glad I'm not managing as much as I feel like I, I disagree with Ross on occasion. 
Um, every time I say I could do a better job, I don't mean it, David, I promise. Um, yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult decision to make. I'm glad I don't have to make it, but objectively what's best for the team is Hayward either being not on the team or playing very sparingly. And again, that's a difficult decision for both Jed and Ross to make, but I think ultimately that's what the right decision is. Yeah. Randall, I was just thinking about that just in the last uh, few minutes of your, uh, little you know, that right there, I was thinking about the fact that you haven't uh, booed David Ross yet. You haven't popped that cherry. <laughs> so uh, I, I unless you did that game against Milwaukee, which I don't think you went to where the Cubs won. I don't think you've booed David Ross yet. Uh, you, you know, it's a smaller sample size. I've unfortunately only been to a couple of games this season works, made it very difficult to get out there. Uh, you're correct. I haven't booed David Ross, but at the same time, he has only been the manager for one season wherein people have been in the ballpark. I would hope David Ross uh, is the manager of this team. Right, you know what? I'm going to say, I'm going to put it this way. I hope I get the chance to boo David Ross because <laughs> that means that means he's continues on as the manager of the team for a long time to come. And uh, it means I am able to get back into the ballpark and watch him make decisions with which I don't agree. So, you know, it, I know it's odd to phrase it that way, but I hope I get that opportunity. I agree with you. Uh, as for Jason, I, yeah, I, I don't think he's going to be DFA over the off season. I would expect him to come back. Even I, I like Brennan Davis. I don't think Brennan Davis is going to start the team or start with the big club next year. I would imagine he gets some triple A at bats. Maybe, maybe when he does come up at some point, then they have to make a hard decision with Jason. But I don't think he at the start of the year, I don't see it. But who knows? Maybe maybe you could find some team willing to take on his contract if you're willing to pay it down. Maybe the Cubs end up paying a significant amount of his contract, 17, 18, 20 million dollars. Uh, plus, you know, some of the bonus that's going to come out later, um, you know, just to or actually now, you know, it's two years. So maybe it's more like 40 million or something. But I, I just don't think that I, I, I think 2023 is really the year where you're kind of like going to see Jason maybe you know, would they be willing to eat that? I don't think they'd really be willing to eat that with two years left. I could see it more with one year and for next year, you know, maybe he does at the start of the year, get some, you know, some start, uh, some starts, but I, I, I think it's much more likely to see him riding the pine. I think Jason, first of all, is the type of guy I don't, I'm sure he wants to play a lot, but I'm sure he would also understand, you know, if Ross came to him, like, this is going to be your role. Now you're, you're not going to be the guy who's out there every day. I think he would kind of understand that. And I think he'd be willing to, you know, after getting over the initial, he would be willing to make that his role. So I could see that, you know, he's, he's as you mentioned, he's playing non-starters minutes. Um, he, he's, or, you know, that's more of a basketball terminology, but not playing uh, every day as a player uh, in the field, you know, you're trying to get Hap out there. You're probably going to try to get Nico out there as well. Uh, you mentioned Hermosillo, uh, Ortega, maybe around. So, um, yeah, so I, I just think Jason, he's going to be a guy. And who knows? You know, we all wrote him off after his first two years. And then he came back and had a few solid seasons as a hitter, you know, putting up, you know, two, three war seasons. So um, nothing special, but not horrible. Um, so maybe he, there is stuff he can give you coming off the bench. And to be clear, I don't think they will get rid of him again. No, I, I think I, the money, the money owed. And I think the respect that his manager and his front office have for him will prevent that. Um but, you know, that's that's always the divide. What's the objective best thing to do and subjectively what is likely to happen? And in this case, those are two different things. It's been disappointing, too, offensively, because he had such high hopes. Great offensive season in St. Louis. He has been very valuable in his time. He hasn't been one hundred and eighty four million dollars valuable, but the glove has been a lot of fun. And, and yeah, that speech, that thing in the clubhouse 
uh, it plays some role in success with a team. And it's somebody who is well-respected by the coaching staff, by his teammates. Um, not that this impacts what happens on the field at all, but I think it's important to note too, he's doing some cool stuff in Chicago, particularly on the West side, building a really neat facility out there. So he's given back to the city. He seems to have really embraced his time in Chicago, his time playing for the Cub. So even though he's been, you know, quote unquote overpaid or he hasn't lived up to his contract, still very well received by the fan base and somebody who we're pulling for. Um, I don't know that he's going to get to the end of his contract in Chicago, but I think we're all in agreement. He's going to be with the team next year and hopefully he can find something as a defensive replacement, as a guy who can fill in and take some innings in right field. Maybe he can find a role with that team and be productive for the final couple years of his career. Yeah. And one thing I also want to point out about Jason is that, you know, he's a guy that chose to play for the Cubs. Uh, he chose to play in Chicago. I mean, yeah, obviously $184 million. It's not, it's not like it was a tough decision, but you know, he did actually get bigger offers from other teams. I think St. Louis offered him 200 million. Another team I feel like offered him around the nationals, million. the nationals, nationals. Were the other team. In the I wasn't, I wasn't sure. And he chose to play for the Cubs and now say what you will about, you know, Javi about Chris Bryant, about Rizzo, about a lot of guys. They did not choose to play for the Cubs. They didn't have that option. Now, you know, of course, I'm sure they love their time being with the Cubs and and the Cubs were winning when he chose to play for the Cubs. But Chase is a guy who made the decision. He said, I want to play for the Chicago Cubs. I want to play in Wrigley Field. I want to play in the city of Chicago. So for that, I will always, you know, have the respect for him and have love for him. Yeah. And, I, and a guy like that, I'm not going to hate on him. And you know what? He's a World Series hero, so yep, he can put that exactly. hang, uh, hang that hat up when he wraps up his career. Uh, Jeremy, you mentioned the bonus. I wanted to share that. I was reading about his contract earlier today. I thought this was really cool. One of the smart things his agent did when he signed the contract, he was given a $20 million signing bonus. And how he chose to receive it is in annual installments, $5 million a year to be paid out each year on April 1st following his contract with the Cubs. So April 1st, 2024, 2025, 2026, and 2027, Jason Hayward's going to open up that mailbox. There's going to be a $5 million check sitting there with uh, Tom Ricketts' name on it. So pretty interesting way of putting the contract together. And it is nice to see, and this may sound silly talking about someone who signed a $184 million deal, but just to see the financial literacy and the thought there of, let me save some of this for after my career. That's going to be a good idea. That's uh, an important thing. A lot of players struggle with that. And Jason appears to have that together. I will also say, I imagine the Cubs or Theo was pretty cool at that as well, because if I recall, yeah. when they did sign him in 2016, the Cubs were still kind of under their debt kind of covenant where they weren't really allowed to raise um, payroll a certain amount. And so they were kind of so I'm sure the Cubs were also like, you know, on the side of that, like, let's put up some of it. So you're not just getting it immediately lower our books for this year. You know, that that's Friday. Randall's problem. That's that's Friday. Jason, uh, Theo and Tom's problem. That's the few, yeah. our future problem. So like we don't today we're we're OK. Well, it all worked out. Yeah. And he's uh, been a part of some of the best teams in Chicago Cubs history. I'm um, talking about some other players here quickly uh, on the injury front. Some sad news here in the last week. Michael Hermosillo, who was playing well, having some exciting baseball. Jeremy, I know that you think ILL every time that he's in the batter's box it's in his name going to lose him for the rest of the year that is a bummer uh, forearm injury I believe is what it is and he's out so that's a bummer this is a guy who was getting meaningful innings for the Cubs we expected him to be starting games here down the stretch and now we're not going to see him until spring training next year that one stinks it is a bummer it kind of reminds me of uh 2015 Javi Baez it was like every time you thought he was going to get a chance to play 
he kind of got hurt. And that's kind of happened to Hermes Seal this year. He got in a car accident in spring training. He had another in, uh, injury one day where you were thinking about calling him up midseason. And then he comes up and he actually performs a little bit. He hit some bombs. He hit some homers. He's made some amazing catches in center field. And then he has to go back out onto the IL. And so it's kind of disappointing. He showed some flashes. So it's also disappointing because it's like you don't really know what you have there. You you want to see, so you got to make a decision on him next year, obviously, what you want to do with him, whether he's going to be a part of next year's team, and you have to make it on limited you know, knowledge. I mean, obviously, you'll probably get some spring training in there, but uh, it's, so it's a little disappointing. So I, I, I like Michael. I like, as you said, I like a guy who tweets out ILL. It's in his name, ILL, <laughs> uh, Hermesio. So I, I like a guy who, you know, he can watch as much Illini football this weekend. I, I'm not sure I would want to be watching as much as playing Virginia, probably get the wrong origin blue winning that game. But uh, uh, it's disappointing to see Michael go down. Yeah, it's, it's lost development time. It's lost evaluation time. Same problem that uh, Nico is having is again, these are guys who you would hope might potentially play meaningful roles on next year's team. And you've lost very valuable time in evaluating them in the eyes of the big league coaching staff and the front office. And you know, it's not, it's not uh, crippling, but it's just unfortunate. It's, it's time that you were counting on to evaluate these players and you're not going to have that now. Well, here's some good news regarding Cubs injuries. A guy that we thought season was over David Bodie back with the big league team. He messed up his ankle down at the South side a couple of weeks ago, a really nasty looking injury, just amazing Randall to see him back so quickly. And this is a guy who the next three weeks are going to be important. You know, what can you expect out of David Bodie, a guy who is under contract next season? What can he do here over the next two or three weeks to help establish or give us a clearer picture of what he brings to the team next year? Well, you know, they, they started the season with David Bodie as your everyday second baseman, and he didn't really put up the offensive numbers to warrant that. You know, Jeremy would remind us that he was hitting the ball hard and it wasn't it wasn't finding Ivy. It wasn't finding grass. But, you know, David Bodie, another guy who seems like is always has a productive spring or at least a spring worth watching. And then he starts getting starters at bats and it doesn't go so well. It reminds me a little bit of Mike Fontenot, who was a guy who was very productive in part as a part time player for some of the better Cubs teams of the, the late aughts, whatever you want to call that decade. Uh, when he started getting starters at bats, he started getting exposed a little bit. And Bodie reminds me of that. And I think going forward, he's probably best as a, a super utility guy. You can play him at second base and third base. He's not going to embarrass you at either position. Uh, as a rookie, he saw some time at shortstop, some time at left field, even a little bit of first base. I think going forward, that's probably his best role on this team is a guy who can come in for defensive purposes, a guy who can move around the diamond, um, give you a little bit of power off the bench. We know he hits the ball hard. He's a, a stat cast darling with the exit velocity. It just hasn't translated when he's been given full-time opportunities. And I think going forward, the best thing for him is probably uh, as a utility player. And that's fine. Uh, utility players have to come from somewhere and every one that you're able to bring in cheaply, even though Bodie of course makes a little more money than your average utility guy with the extension he signed. Every one of those you can find cheaply and readily is one you don't have to go out and look for. And that's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with being a productive utility player in Major League Baseball. I, as we all know, I'm a big David Bodie fan, so I like seeing David Bodie out there. I, 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 I just feel, I feel like, as Randall mentioned, you know, he hits the ball so hard. And he's, as you said, a stat cast darling that at some point it's like it's got to break through. He hits the ball hard. It's got to break through. So I just keep waiting for that moment. Unfortunately, this year we saw him get hurt against the Reds. We saw him um, 
you know, step on a baseball in Comiskey or whatever you want to call that place down there. Um, so it's just, it's just weird. As you said, another guy who's had these injuries and, and I just keep waiting for the breakout. It hasn't really come. And, uh, and hopefully I think, I feel like we, he should be given this chance these last two, three weeks. Maybe he can do like an Ian Happ and, and go off and at the end of the season here and raise some of those. He's not going to have like great numbers, but raise some of those numbers up so we can see him into next year. Two other points here before we talk Chris Bryant and the Giants coming to town this weekend. Alec Mills, really good the other night against Cincinnati. Six innings, one run ball. He's been one of the Cubs' best starting pitchers since the All-Star break. So Alec Mills trying to earn a spot in the rotation next year. That's worth watching the next couple of weeks. Also, how about this bullpen? If there's one thing that I feel really good about going into next season or an area that I don't think the Cubs really need to address much this offseason, it's the bullpen. Rowan Wick has been fantastic since coming back from his injury. Cody Hoyer, who came over in the trade um, for Kimbrell, sub one ERA in his time with the Cubs. He pitches a couple of innings last night, gets the win in relief. There are some big time arms in this Cubs bullpen. That's, I think, the strongest area going into next season. And I think, and I, and I think, as we talked about earlier in this year, it makes me a lot more confident in just the Cubs pitching infrastructure itself where we've had some turnover in this bullpen, you know, King and Thompson, Justin Steele, those guys are huge parts of this bullpen and they're moved into the rotation. Craig Kimbrell, uh, Andrew Chafin, Ryan Tapera all traded. And yet the Cubs were able to go back, rework the bullpen and, and they found, you know, more arms. And, and a lot of their guys have had velocity uh, spikes this year uh, in the minors and they found more arms. They've, they had a little bit of a struggle there when they went on there, but they've worked it out a little bit. Cody Hoyer, you know, just, on ERA right now, he's been better than Craig Krimfrel, uh for the White Sox. So uh, it's, it's you know, probably not getting the strikeouts or whatever, but, you know, that's how it is. And so what it really does is it gives me confidence in Tommy Hanavi. It gives me confidence in the Cubs pitching infrastructure uh, to really, even if, you know, some there's some changes in there, that the Cubs really know how to work a bullpen and get a solid bullpen. And unfortunately, actually, Alex Mills uh, was added three earned runs today. So that's, that's disappointing because they changed a air on Patrick Wisdom to a hit. In one, of those, in one of those Pirates games, they they made those unearned runs earned, and that is, in fact, change. nonsense. It's hogwash. Alec Mills deserves better. I think he's worked himself into the conversation. I think at the very least, he has earned the right to compete for that fifth starter spot next spring. You know, you've got a lot of room in the rotation next spring pending, obviously, a full off season. But you know, Mills has not been great when he's been used out of the bullpen. But as a starting pitcher, he's been respectable more often than not. And again, I think for a team next year, you're not really sure what direction they're going to go uh, with room in the rotation. I think he's earned the right to at least compete for that fifth starter spot next spring. It's worth watching. It's something to keep an eye on here the final couple of weeks. How about this? If you want something to watch, Chris Bryant returning to Wrigley Field this weekend with the first place San Francisco Giants. In a moment, we're going to talk about some of our favorite Chris Bryant memories. We're going to look back on his wonderful run as a world champion in Chicago. But I want to first talk about Chris Bryant now as a San Francisco Giant. 31 games played with the Giants since being traded by the Chicago Cubs right up at that trade deadline. The slash line in San Francisco, 265, a 328 on base percentage, a 487 slugging percentage. And that's about 20 points down in terms of on base and slugging from his run with the Cubs this year. He's likely going to finish short of four war. That's according to fan graphs. Um, but he's playing for a team with a chance to win a World Series. He's a guy who gave everything 
especially this year with the Chicago Cubs, other than pitcher and catcher, he played everywhere. He hit the ball well. He was having a wonderful season with the Cubs until they traded him. Uh, Jeremy, when you look at Chris Bryant in San Francisco right now, a couple of things stand out. One, why isn't he playing all the time? Seems like he's got a lot of time off, and that's been a little bit of a head scratcher as this is a team that's playing good baseball, and he could be a part of a World Series championship here in the Bay. Yeah, that's kind of been my kind of thing about just following the Giants. It's like he's not in the lineup that often. Uh, It's like every other day, sometimes every two, three days, he's like not in there. Uh, I believe he mentioned the other day that he had like a wrist injury that's been affecting him since high school when he fell off like a golf cart or something like that, which is really weird because that's something with seven years, eight, nine years in the Cubs organization I've never heard of. And he says that to like the San Francisco media as to why he's not playing that so much. So that's kind of odd. Um. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, San Francisco, NL West, uh, three of those ballparks are a lot harder to hit in than, uh, you know, Wrigley or the National League uh, Central. Obviously, Arizona and Colorado, you have the exact opposite problem. But, you know, Los Angeles, San Diego and San Francisco itself are not great uh, offensive ballparks. So his numbers, it makes sense that they'd be a little down. He he hasn't really been great in San Francisco. He's been kind of, you know, kind of average uh, in terms of a Chris Bryant type of his own performance, not in, not comparing him to the rest of the league, just comparing him to himself. Um, kind of just been average Chris Bryant, maybe, a little, you know, a little less. But that's the weird thing to me. It's just not he's not playing as much as and I don't know if it's just resting him for the playoffs since the Giants are definitely going to be in the playoffs, although you would think they'd not want to be in the wildcard game. And the Dodgers are like right behind them, although they did take two out of three against Los Angeles. So they have a little more of a comfort room. But uh, I, that's just the weird part of it to me is how 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 much rest he's got. Why Tommy LaStella is getting so much action that Chris Bryant's not because that didn't happen in Chicago. Yeah, the thing about is his chronic wrist injury, you said it, all of his time in Chicago, and that never really came up. And he tells the San Francisco media that he fell off a utility cart when he was in it was high school or college, and he's, he's had a bone chip in his wrist ever since. It's really weird that that never came up, especially him playing through a great deal of injury and missing a lot of time. A wrist injury that he played through last year. A wrist injury that he played through last year. It's really (laughs) weird that that never came up, but you know, it it makes sense. As you said, the the giants are a lock to make the postseason one way or another. It makes sense that Gabe Kapler out there would want to keep Bryant fresh uh, and and not let probably nagging injuries in the wrist. And of course he's had some hamstring issues. He wouldn't want to let those flare up and keep Chris from playing in the postseason. Um, so, it, you know, it makes sense that he's sitting as much as he's playing. You want to keep your guys fresh, especially when you're that much of a lock to make the postseason. Well, the Giants are the first team in baseball to 90 wins. They get there at 90 and 50. So they're 40 games over 500 and they're holding off the World Series champs. The Dodgers two and a half back going into play this weekend. So going to be a lot of excitement around this Giants team coming into Wrigley Field. And I am looking forward to the tributes. Give me all the tribute videos, the standing ovations, the warm reception that we know Chris Bryant is going to receive. Uh, it was tough to see him go. I I commend Jed Hoyer for making the difficult decisions a month ago and really reinforcing this Cubs farm system. And I think setting them up for success as early as next year, but it was tough to see KB go. And I'm looking forward to a warm reception for him because if there's anybody who deserves it over the last couple of years, Chris Bryant deserves the warmest of welcomes at Wrigley field. Yeah. I'm sure he'll get a standing O every time he's back. I'm very disappointed because I, you know, I had tickets on Saturday and unfortunately 
back about in mid-July, I made a commitment to be out of town this weekend to go on a golf trip when I wasn't, you know, at that point, I, I was really holding off. I was like, I'm not, I don't want to go late in the season because the Cubs, I got all these, whatever, I, I would like to go earlier. And once the Cubs just tanked it, I was like, all right, I, those games, they're probably not going to matter. I'm ready to go. And then they end up trading Chris to San Francisco after I committed to the weekend, San Francisco is coming in. I knew they're going to be traded. So I'm very disappointed that uh, I'm not going to be out there. So I, I, I wish I was out there and not seeing Chris return to Wrigley. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing experience. I'm sure they'll have a huge tribute video before the game on Friday. Um, and seeing him, it's going to be a little sad. It's, I'm sure it's going to be, you know, emotional for him to be there, uh, in a giants uniform. I hope he plays. I hope he plays every day. Um, you know, uh, despite, I'm sure he'll want to play even if he's hurt and it's going to be interesting. And, and I, I, I really hope that, you know, I hope he does well, you know, Albert Homer in his, in his return to St. Louis the other day, I hope Chris does something special. You know, Brian's the lucky one because none of his uh, traded ex-teammates get to come back to Wrigley this season. The Cubs are obviously done with the Mets and were long before the trade deadline and the Yankees don't come in this year. Bryant is the one guy who gets to come back and he has said he's looking forward Brett to that. Because, and Ryan Tapera. Uh, okay, I guess you could count that. Um, but, you know, Brian's the one of the big the one of the big three who gets to come back. And he said he's looking forward to that because of how abruptly he he left you know he didn't get that final at bat at Wrigley before being traded none of them or Rizzo didn't either um and he's looking forward to saying thank you to some people he didn't get to say goodbye to and that's Chris in a nutshell you know he's in a playoff not a playoff hunt but he's with a team who's a lock to make the postseason 40 games over 500 and Bryant is is looking forward to coming back to where it all started and and kind of getting some closure and that's that's Chris Bryant in a nutshell it says volumes about him and I hope he's treated properly at Wrigley this weekend and uh, I think he will be he had some nice things to say about Cubs fans a couple weeks ago. Um, he was asked about, I think they were in Milwaukee and some of the Cubs media traveled up there to see the game at uh, AmFam Miller Park airplane hangar. And he talked about Wrigley Field saying, it will always be home to me. He was talking about once his career is over and he's in retirement, going back to Wrigley Field as a fan and just getting to take in that experience. Whatever happens to him here in free agency, whoever he signs with, and maybe it will be the Cubs. We don't know what's going to happen this offseason, although I don't expect him to be coming back. Um, he's going to be welcome at Wrigley Field for the rest of his life, and he's going to be a World Series hero for the rest of his life. So he's going to be a Cub no matter where he goes, wherever his career plays out. But it has me thinking back on, okay, Chris Bryant, Chicago Cubs, you know, what comes to mind to you? Obviously, the World Series making the final play. Um, I certainly think about just the incredible run that he had from the National College Player of the Year to the minor league player of the year, to the National League rookie of the year, to the National League MVP in four consecutive years. Incredible stuff there from Chris Bryant and really being the face, I think in many ways, uh, offensively of the Cubs World Series run and all the playoff teams the last few years. Randall, I mentioned Chris Bryant. What memories, what moments come to mind? What kind of rise to the top of the pile there for you? You know, it's really difficult picking one, but ultimately what I settled on was a game uh, against, I believe, the Colorado Rockies late July of 2015. The Cubs were in a, a bit of a rut. They had lost a lot more than they had won. Jason Mott, uh, the veritable applesauce man, uh, gave up a bunch of runs to the Rockies in the ninth inning, including a home run to future 
former Cub Daniel Descalso, and the Cubs ended up blowing uh, what seemed like a fairly comfortable lead in the ninth, and it just felt like things were spiraling. And then Chris Bryant steps up with two outs and a runner on first, and he parks one to the left center field bleachers. Len Casper had a, a great call, as he did on most of the walk-offs. And, you know, it, it Deshays, you can hear him on that call saying, this team needed a lift in the worst way, and this kid just provided it. And, you know, that's, again, that's Chris Bryant in a nutshell. He was the spark. He was the lift. He was the heart. He was the fire that made those teams stand up and be competitive. And so that's, that's my memory is this Chris Bryant walk off against Colorado. It was what the team needed when they needed. And again, that's Chris Bryant in a few words. He was what the Cubs needed when they needed it. I, I have like too many to pick one. There's just so many. And I know Randall said that, that I, I, I think about, I, I, you know, I think about him coming up. It, well, first of all, his first spring training, uh, or not his first, but the spring training before he got called up where he hit 10 home runs, it seemed like every home run he too, he hit was to, to uh, right center field, just like a perfect oppo shot. <laughs> and he was just ki- killing it. And then he gets called up, you know, he, um, James Shields just owns him with the changeups uh, against the Padres. He's striking out. And then, you know, going to see, going to Milwaukee, where we all were there, we saw his uh, first historic home run up there at, uh, as you said, Amfam Miller Park, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, just just all of that, the home run in game five of the World Series, which was a, a huge homer. Randall mentioned the walk off against Colorado. I'm thinking, didn't he have a walk off against Cleveland as well that year? He did uh, that, a, late, that same, a homer that same yeah. year. It was a makeup game against Cleveland yeah. again. They blew a, a, a tight game late. And Bryant came up on a, a coolish day for late August, and he he parked one into right center field. It probably wouldn't have been out in too many parks. It just got out uh, to right and right center. But again, it counted just the same, and it just helped cement that that 2015 team was for real. Yeah, and and then you know we went to the all three of us were there on a. Uh, the Fourth of July, where he had two home runs, including a grand slam, really early in the game. Uh, Rowan and I were we were there where he set the record for that Patrick Wisdom's going to break for the most home runs by a rookie, and one that always stands out to me is uh, against the Giants in the first round of the or the playoffs where the Cubs didn't end up winning that game, but he hit a big home run which tied the game late. I, I think even in the ninth inning, really, uh, they went to extras, I believe, and it tied the game in uh, game what was that game three? I think it was. Uh, game three, uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, there's just so many Chris Bryant memories that I have. And, and so, you know, he got some hate or later in his career for, you know, especially last year where he was really not producing, um, you know, he, he went off Twitter cause so much was going on, but, you know, I can't imagine, you know, he will always be loved at Wrigley. I just can't imagine fans booing him or anything. He will get standing O's all weekend. Uh, he's an NL MVP. He's an NL rookie of the year. He's a world series champion. First time in 108 years. He, he is basically, I mean, he brought the Cubs back. I mean, him with a couple other guys, but he was the main cog in that, uh, uh, you know, Rizzo as well, but it was really Chris Bryant. He had, the, he's the one who had the, the billboard up outside of Wrigley before he was ever a member of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, they put that up, uh, you know, before he got called up. So uh, it's unfortunate the way everything played out. I hope, you know, the Cubs remain in contact with him throughout the winter, but you know, it's going to be sad to see him return in another Jersey, but I hope he has an amazing time. And I hope him as Dio said, they'd be out there, you know, getting tickets, going to games when he he's, he's no longer a member of the team. So I hope when Brian's retired, he does make uh, at least, you know, once a year, whatever coming out to Wrigley field and throwing out the first pitch, maybe doing a seventh inning stretch, yeah, having some fun with, you know, it, it'd be great. 
Well, there'll be years, many, many years from now where we're going to go out to Wrigley Field and there's going to be uh, Rizzo and Baez and, and Bryant uh, maybe walking out there with walkers or something out to throw out the first pitch. But we're going to embrace it. And these guys are going to we'll be celebrating. We'll have those walkers, too. Well, yeah, we'll be rolling Randall right up to the uh, yellow line there in the lower deck, yeah. and we'll be hanging out, uh, taking in Cubs baseball and oh, I don't know, 2060, something like that. Um, and you know what? They're still going to be playing at Wrigley. So oh, yeah. that sounds good to me. And uh, Tom Ricketts we'll made it happen. He saved it. <laughs> have either of you watched it yet? You know, I, figured, 20, I figured 20, not. I have not, but in 2060, no. it'll be called Ricketts Wrigley Field. Oh, goodness. I can hope not, but at least the ballpark will still Wrigley be standing. Field. Wrigley Field at TD Ameritrade Stadium presented by Tom Ricketts. Well, I'll say, too, uh, you touched on a lot of the moments. Uh, I think in 2015, there were so many things about that team. That was kind of the coming out party for the Cubs. We knew going into that season that team was going to be very good. Took a while for Wrigley Field to kind of get behind it and fill up. But by the middle of 2015, Jake was doing his thing. The Cubs were going off. And uh, that's a team that, I don't know, maybe if they had Chris Bryant from opening day, they win the division. But it all worked out. They win the wild card. They get to beat that fun game against Pittsburgh and then knock the Cardinals out of the playoffs. And a year later, the World Series champions. One other game that stands out to me was just uh, when I first moved here to Denver. The first time I saw the Cubs playing in Wrigley after being a permanent resident of this city. Chris Bryant hit a home run and it was in 2016, a couple of months before the world series. So that was cool for me, but Jeremy, definitely we were there, the three of us in Milwaukee, the Cubs got totally smoked by the Brewers, but we got to see Chris Bryant's first major league home run. And that's the whole reason we went to that ball game. We knew we hadn't done it yet. We went up to the ballpark. We took it in. And then, um, for well, I you went and to I, see Jeremy, Phil Coke pitch. Well, of course, but for you and I, Jeremy, a couple months later to see him set the record for rookie home runs for the Cubs, things really came full circle for us that season. And we were all at the Cubs first victory of 2015 as well. A nice midweek day game against St. Louis. So a lot of fun that year. Excited to see Chris Bryant back this weekend. Um, Randall, it's been tough here in Denver the last couple days today, which is what September nine, we set the record for the hottest temperature on record in Denver. Tomorrow's going to be worse. It was 95 today. It should touch 98 tomorrow. It has been super smoky too. We're getting a cool front this weekend. Apparently it's going to move some of the smoke out. We need that. What's up this weekend at Wrigley field. What do our guys at Cubs weather have for us? Well, Ronan, as you said, we are fortunate to have Alexander Hall of Cubs Weather at Alexander Hall at Cubs Weather, providing us the weather forecast for our next two series each and every episode here on Behind the Yellow Line. And so what Alexander tells us for this weekend series against the Giants, he says the series vibe is put away the pumpkin spice latte and reach for the pumpkin cold brew. It is still technically late summer here in the Midwest, and it is going to feel like it after what he can only assume is the universe personally teasing Chris Bryant with how wonderful Chicago weather can be for the Friday game. It'll warm up a little bit for the weekend. Uh, gusty winds out of the Southwest and humidity will go back to, and I quote crab boil adjacent with dew points in the mid to upper sixties. Uh, so all three games this weekend are 120 starts for the Friday game temperatures around 80 degrees with a light breeze out to center field and sky clear as, and I'm quoting again, a chalkboard in July, comfortable humidity and the pick of the weekend for multiple reasons. Saturday, you can expect partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid to upper 80s with increasing humidity. The wind will be blowing out to center field 10 to 20 miles per hour. There could be some home runs hit that day. Sunday will again be partly cloudy and the temperatures will again be in the mid to upper 80s with moderate humidity and winds out to right field around 10 miles per hour or variable with a possible lake influence. 
The Cubs will then hit the road and they will shift to Philadelphia, where the series vibe will include a mostly dry period out there on the East Coast with seasonable warmth and moderate humidity. There's a little more uncertainty than normal in the extended range forecast, so it's possible there could be some rain for the Wednesday game. Right now, those are projected to occur outside of the game window. So for Tuesday night, which is a 6.05 p.m. Central Time start, temperatures will be in the low 80s out in Philadelphia, partly cloudy skies with light and variable winds. Wednesday night, again, a 6.05 Central Time start, temperatures again around 80, partly cloudy with light winds out to center field. And finally, the Thursday night game, which will be a 5.05 Central Time start, that's going to be a little weird. Temperatures will again be around 80, skies will again be partly cloudy, and light winds will again be blowing out to center field and left field. So as always, we thank Alexander and his cohorts at Cubs Weather. Be sure to follow him at Alexander Hall. Be sure to follow all three of them at Cubs Weather, providing us with the great forecast every week and providing all of you out there in the Twitter sphere with all the weather you need to know, whether you are watching or attending any particular Cubs game. Yeah, good stuff, Alexander. Thanks for sending that in to us. Philadelphia, Randall, there is a historic American city a uh, longtime National League Baseball program, a hostile fan base, I think is safe to say. How do you feel about the cheesesteaks, Randall? You know, I'm a big fan of cheesesteaks as a food item. I've never had an authentic Philadelphia one. I've never been in Philadelphia. But if you put a cheesesteak in front of me, I will eat it. I have no compunctions, religious, moral, or dietary, or otherwise against uh, ingesting a cheesesteak. Jeremy, where are you on the uh, cheesesteak bandwagon? I'm sorry, I had to control myself after that. Uh, yeah, I'm a cheesesteak guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I, it's not something I generally will ever order anywhere. You know, it's hard to find. I, like Randall, I've never had an authentic cheesesteak. I, oh, I've never really been in Philadelphia outside of the airport. I've, I've made a couple connections through there. Um, it's, it's, it's a place I would like to go, you know, just to see it. Uh, I know that the ballparks are and the stadiums seem to all be in one area kind of by the airport. But uh, unfortunately, I've only ever seen them from the air. Um, but yeah, you know, you put a cheesesteak in front of me. I'll, I'll agree with Randall. I'll eat it. I'm very surprised, Jeremy. You're well-traveled. You're a history buff. I figured I know. Philly would be a place I agree many, many times you'd have gotten to over the I, years. I just haven't been able to get out there. I'd love to go there. love to go to Independence Hall. love to see the Liberty Bell. love to do all that. And go see it's ben a great Franklin. city. Yeah, 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 it's a great city, a good time. Nice ballpark. I've been there on a couple of occasions, um, including a hostile encounter with some Phillies fans back in probably 2009 or so. Uh, Cubs got blown out that night, and the fans were just total assholes to us. We had our Cubs hats on, and ah, part of the Philly experience, it is what it is. Um, you know, I think back, when I think of Phillies baseball, when I was a kid, I felt like that was a team that generally wasn't great. Um, I liked Mickey Morandini. They had some guys over the years, but those mid to late 2000s, when they had Howard and Utley, some fantastic teams there, they got a World Series out of it. And um, a great moment, too, against the Cubs in 2008, the Grand Slam that Aramis Ramirez hit against the Phillies on a night game at Wrigley Field. That was one of the greatest moments of that season, and a big reason for it is the Phillies were such a good team. So for him to have that moment was a big part of it. But those teams, Jeremy, those late 2000s or so they had hitters up and down that lineup and some dominant pitching as well great teams great teams chase Utley, one of my favorite players jimmy rollins uh shane uh, victorino carlos ruiz you can just go up pat burrell uh, up and down those lineups uh you know i thought for a second there when you're talking about the phillies having a great moment against the cubs i thought you were going to talk about uh 2015 when they were a terrible team swept the cubs and no oh. hit the cubs with cole hamels that randall loves to talk about 
But yeah, you know, I, I think about, you know, the, you, as you said, the Phillies were a terrible team in the late nineties, early two thousands, all those, you know, I remember when they brought in Jim Tomey after he wanted to come to the Cubs, but for me, for some reason, I always think about like the 93 Phillies. I was a young guy, not, not really following up that year, but I do remember the world series that year. And I remember Joe Carter with the Homer. And I remember I always, for some reason, John Crook in the Phillies uniform always kind of stuck with me, just the look and everything and Mitch Williams and, and Lenny yeah. Dykstra and Kurt Schilling and all and those vet. guys at the vet, you know, where Wendell Davis destroyed his legs with, for the Bears. You ever watch that clip? That's just horrifying. Uh, the vet just, just uh, you know, as I said last week, Julio Zuleta hit. I always think of the vet with Zuleta hitting a double down the line or Dominic McNabb playing for the Eagles and Randall Cunningham. But, uh, you know, I don't know why the 93 team always kind of stuck with me. Yeah, John Cruck yeah. with that greasy hair flowing out the back of his helmet. Yeah. John Cruck, he, he sticks in a lot of baseball memories. I was super excited. I remember when John Cruck signed with the White Sox. I was like, oh, they got that guy. He's going to be great. And then he didn't really do anything with the White Sox. Well, they did a really nice job at the new ballpark in Philly. And I think of, I had nightmares when I think of that from a football standpoint, just thinking of those guys on AstroTurf tackling each other. It's terrifying looking back on it. And baseball players, uh, all the knees that got destroyed and the crazy hops that you'd see in these games. Also, just thinking about Philadelphia in July or August, it's a humid part of the country. You're playing a day game in that sun, on that turf. No, thank you. That said... I kind of wish I could hop in the time machine and go back to an Eagles playoff game or something when it was just a concrete pile there. It was cold and those fans were in it because that would have been iconic in its own way. I do think, though, both the Eagles and the Phillies have upgraded in terms of facilities, but there's a lot of history in that vet for an old ashtray of a stadium. Yeah. And one and one thing I, I always thought was kind of funny was uh, in the vet, there were so much issues in the vet. You know, fans are so unruly and stuff like that. They that when they, they had a holding cell in the vet and not only did yeah. they have a holding cell, they, there was so much going on that they had to build in a little like court room where they had a judge judges ruling on things that people did in the vet, like Ed Rendell, who later became mayor of Philadelphia and the governor of Pennsylvania was actually in there ruling on people just, just to get them through because there were so many so that when they built Lincoln financial field, I believe they built that into it because they thought, you know, at the vets, everybody was so unruly and everything that, but then they never really used it Lincoln financial field. Cause I guess if you actually build people a nice stadium, they don't treat it as poorly. Yeah. And to your point earlier, Jeremy too, one thing about Philadelphia is all their stadiums are basically in the same parcel of the city. The NBA NHL arena is there, the NFL stadium, the major league stadium. They've got the old uh, stadium. That's now a concert venue there. And they're building an uh, e-gaming venue in the middle of that lot as well. They've got uh, bars and restaurants and things. It's a little bit isolated in that it's not downtown, but different cities do different things in terms of their sports complexes. And what Philly does is they put them all in the same piece of land. So if you're going to a Phillies game or you're going to an Eagles game, game you're going to that same spot and that area there has history now and at least if you're a Phillies fan you know if you're going to a game you know exactly where you're going because no matter who you're seeing it's in the same place yeah you know the spectrum the spectrum used to be out there and if we want to talk about the spectrum we're going to have to talk about October 31st 2009 (laughs) during the World Series when Pearl Jam closed down the spectrum played one of their greatest concerts ever so you know given also updates for Raul Ibanez in the 2009 World Series while it was going on Jeremy, Which I saw you crazy. shaking your head. Because hold on, October 31st is is so late. I mean, I guess the Cubs won yeah. November 2nd, but it just feels so late to play a World Series game. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, you were shaking your head when I mentioned the e-gaming venue oh, yeah. in Philly. It's like a 10,000 nearly seat venue, a big stadium. They're building right there in the shadow of the ballpark. Not a fan of the uh, e-gaming arenas? 
I, I, I just, I don't get it. You know, I, I'm a big, I love gaming. I, I've always loved gaming, but just the whole e-gaming fad, not just, I just, I just can't like people showing up to watch. I, it was always the kid that liked to watch other people play as well, but just 10,000, like that's incredible to me. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, you know, people like it, go for it. Randall, will we see you playing uh, pokey there in one of those stadiums? You are unlikely to find me anywhere near or associated with any of that. I will uh, hard pass on that, but I appreciate the invitation. Well, let me throw a quick plug in here about video games. I've mentioned this a couple times in the show. I'm a big OOTP guy. I love playing out of the park baseball. Got a great sim going right now with the Cubs. But they put out something today that may be of interest to you, Randall. Boog was a guest here. They had the 2004 Yankees and the 2003 Cubs in a simulation. And the Cubs play-by-play broadcaster was brought in. Uh, it was hosted by Scott Braun, I think is his name. He's the MLB net broadcaster and sometimes play-by-play guy for them. Um, but he's hosting it. It's just interesting to hear Boog calling a big home run from Aramis Ramirez in a World Series game for the Cubs. I got a little bit of a chuckle. I jumped through it a little bit, but they're recreating this potential World Series, the Cubs and the Yankees from about 17 years ago. And Boog is in there for about the 60 or 90 minute interview. Maybe worth your time. Well, that, that would be really anachronistic to me. Uh, of course, Boog, recent voice of the Cubs, Aramis hasn't been here in a long time. That would sound really weird. So maybe I will track that down just to, just to appreciate that. I didn't watch the whole thing. I don't even know who won the simulated World Series, but I caught bits and pieces of it. Sammy had a couple of at-bats. That was fun. And uh, OTP? Good game. I enjoy it. And we've got some good things happening right now, Jeremy, with the 2026 Chicago Cubs. And... Chris Bryant is still a Cub in 2026 in my Sims. So how about that? I kept him home as a Cub for life. That, yeah, but which other Cubs did you trade? Well, the only World Series players that are still on the 2026 Cubs is Chris Bryant and Javier Baez. So don't think that's going to be the case in 2026, but still fun to have that going. Um, let's shift gears a little bit here. Look elsewhere in Major League Baseball. Historic week with the COVID pandemic. The Hall of Fame induction ceremony was pushed from May here to September. But in Cooperstown, two all-time greats, Derek Jeter of the Yankees, Larry Walker, the Colorado Rocky, finally getting in the Hall of Fame here. Uh, Randall, any thoughts on this class in particular? Uh, Walker becomes just the second Canadian behind Fergie Jenkins to get into the Hall of Fame. Great moment there for Canadian baseball fans and a very proud moment for Colorado Rockies fans. Well, you know, Fergie, very happy to have a fellow Canadian uh, in the hall with him. He was uh, very happy about it on his channels. And, you know, Jeter, a fait accompli from the moment he retired. You knew he was getting in. You, you knew that the, the collective writing uh, cadre was not going to not let him get in on that first ballot. You know, they all felt a sacred duty to make sure that Jeter got in on that first ballot. And they all felt they would have been abdicating had they not voted him in. So, that, you know, that was a fait accompli from the moment he retired. Um, you know, people like to banter back and forth. Was Jeter overrated? Was he underrated? You can argue that all you want. He was a great player and him being in the hall isn't any kind of shock. Walker making it in, you know, he was a guy who was on the ballot a few years. And that's what happens as guys fall off the ballot or guys finally make it onto the ballot or, or finally make it into the hall after getting voted is and is it clears a little bit of a log jam. And I think Larry Walker was the beneficiary of that. And, you know, uh, and good for him, a great hitter in his time, a great defender in his time. Another one of those players who started with those great Expos teams and ended up migrating uh, into the lower 48. So good for him. Uh, and seems like everybody enjoyed themselves. 
Yeah, I, I'm a big Larry Walker fan. I thought he was definitely deserving. Unfortunately, he ended his career with the uh, Cardinals, so I'm sure Reynolds not about that. But uh, I know he went in. He went as a, as a Rocky. It's fine. Yeah, I think Walker was deserving. I think Todd Helton probably deserves more uh, attention for I'm not going to say he should be in, but I think he deserves more attention and should be more uh, conversation, you know, because people knock Rockies players because of the cores, whatever. But Larry Walker was a great player everywhere he played. Um, Derek Jeter. Yeah, obviously Derek Jeter's going to get in. He was a great player. Uh, was he an all time inner circle hall of famer? Like certain media members will have you believe. No, um, he's not Alex Rodriguez or other players that were there, but he's not, he's a hall of fame baseball player. He was, he was objectively one of the a great shortstop and he played, you know, great in the postseason, and which I do think should be coming to take into account. I mean, those are real games. They may be worth more than just a regular game. So I, I do think, and as much time as Derek Jeter played in the postseason, that was a lot of games. So, you know, he, he he's over 70 war. He's, he was a great player deserving. So, so he should get in Um, the whole first ballot thing to me is like, I, I don't care what players, either a hall of famer is not a hall of famer. So whether he gets in the first ballot, second ballot, eight ballot, doesn't matter to me. I, I think you just get as many guys in, in as you, you can. And so like, I would never say like, this guy is not deserving to be a first ballot player or a hall of famer. He's not, or he, or he is, or whatever. He's just, he's just a hall of famer to me. So Derek Jeter. Yeah. He just be in and he pulled a little Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan was there to uh, Patrick Ewing was there um, to uh, not Patrick Ewing, but uh, no, he was yeah, uh, to be was there. there. Yeah, he was there. My bad. Um, and Derek Jeter Polo, Michael Jordan, a speech calling out the one writer who didn't vote for him. You know, that that seems like a Michael Jordan esque petty move uh, to do in your Hall of Fame speech to be like, there's still some guy who didn't think I was good enough. Right. Uh, as my, I mean, Michael brought out the guy who beat him in high school. <laughs> the team. Like, like, how petty is that? But whatever. Um, so I, it's fun. It, it was nice to see all the Hall of Famers up there. Um, you know, a lot of older gentlemen that, you know, he probably couldn't definitely couldn't have been there last year. Hopefully everything went well this year. Um, and, you know, you see how Ryan Sandberg and then Fergie Jenkins was there. And so that, uh, I believe Andre Dawson was there. So it's nice to see all those guys. And one other individual who went in in this class, who I think it's really important to mention, giving what's coming up this offseason, Marvin Miller, who was, of course, the director of the Baseball Players Association from 1966 to 1982. He was elected by the Veterans Committee in the 2020 class, obviously getting enshrined this year. And we talk, we've talked at great length so far. We will continue to talk at great length as this offseason goes on about the issues that the players union faces dealing with the league. But we forget a lot of the times that the MLBPA is regarded as one of the strongest labor unions in the United States. Marvin Miller is responsible for a great deal of that distinction. And it's very important that he be enshrined in the Hall of Fame because the Baseball Hall of Fame and the history of the game is not told solely by the players, but just as much by the individuals organizing them and fighting for their rights as workers. And uh, with that happening, there has been a, a groundswell movement among certain players to induct Kurt Flood into the Baseball Hall of Fame in the future. Kurt Flood, of course, the player who challenged the league and eventually led to the introduction of free agency. There was no free agency prior to Kurt Flood. Players were forced, were traded or released. They could not elect to become free agents and choose their the, the team for whom they would play. And again, as we say, the history of the game is told not just by the players, not just by the executives, but people who did things not necessarily on the field. And it seems to me that if Marvin Miller is to be in there, Kurt Flood probably deserves a place in the hall at some point too. So that's something we've seen players advocating for. I think it makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, so we would be remiss with a CBA fight coming up this fall to not mention the individuals essential to the history of labor in Major League Baseball getting recognition by the Hall of Fame this year. Yeah, uh, you know, I, obviously Marvin Miller, uh, uh, one of the most uh, impactful people on in baseball history. And so you see a guy like Bowie Kuhn in there and some others that, you know, played a role in that. So obviously Marvin Miller should have been there. Unfortunately, he was not inducted while he was still alive, kind of like Ron Santo and his family. They, he didn't want to be in there. You know, he always said, if you don't induct me while I'm alive, then I don't just uh, like then to hell with you guys. I'm okay with my, my standing. So I don't need you. So his family did not show up to the hall of fame because they were respecting his wishes. And Don fear uh, gave his speech in his place. His number two, who ended up leading the hall of fame or leading to the um, major league baseball players association after he went and then went to the NHL uh, players association after uh, he left MLB. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think he's hundred percent deserving as, as to Kurt flood. I'm, I, I would push back a little bit on that. Cause first of all, because I, I I think for a player, first of all, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think a player should be going in for an off the field uh, role because it's it's for players. It's like, you know, they're they're and, and, and Kurt Flood didn't. I mean, yeah, his he obviously was a huge impactful thing and in, in suing and trying to get the reserve clause uh, undone. But it actually didn't. He uh, lost his case. And and it wasn't until Andy Messersmith uh, when when free agency actually really came into being. Um, his the decision that killed the reserve clause. So uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be on board for that one as much. I think uh, Kurt Flog, you know, you want to give him an exhibit. You want to give him a shrine somewhere else in the museum. I would be on board with that as a Hall of Fame baseball player. I would push back a little bit on that one. But yeah, sure. and, and recognize one other, him, recognize yeah. him somehow. I do think for a lot of guys, you know, there are a lot of special players that played baseball, did special things that people you know, think, and I think, yeah, I would be totally cool with recognizing them somewhere on the wing of the hall of fame, doing something yeah. like that. But, um, you know, as people that were influential on baseball, but I don't think I would say he's a hall of famer, you know, yes. uh, Kurt flood. Um, and one other guy, I just want to mention that did get inducted Ted Simmons, a long time, uh, St. Louis Cardinal. And I only want to mention him because there's been this video flowing around that I did see a couple years ago and probably when he first got inducted two years ago, and it's been flowing around again. And it's of a game, I believe in like 1973 of the Cardinals versus the Cubs. And it's the craziest video I've, I've ever kind of seen on a baseball field where I, I you can go on John boy. He retweeted it as well. Um, where the Cubs manager who I believe is Jim Marshall is arguing and Jose Cardinal are arguing with the home plate umpire and the umpire will not hear of it. And just instructed the uh, pitcher to throw and a, he throws a pitch that's completely high and the umpire just calls it a strike. Cardinal is trying to get back into the box. Although he was, I'm assuming he was called out the, the manager, Jim Marshall jumps in front of the plate um, to try to block the next pitch. I think it's Bill Madlock. I couldn't quite tell who it was. The, whoever the Cubs player was on deck runs up to the home plate trying to, to get into the box to actually start to take the pitch. All of a sudden, Ted Simmons goes nuts, shoves somebody, and an entire brawl breaks out on the field where the Cubs and the Cardinals are going at it, and the umpires are just watching it, even though it appears the umpires were like the start of the whole thing. It's absolutely an insane video. It's only like a minute long. I would I would suggest watching it. Well, we'll retweet it on at BTYL podcast and make sure we get that shared. Um, but it's the Hall of Fame. And Jack Brickhouse is calling it, by the way. So just. Oh, even so, another uh, added wrinkle to it. Um, speaking of iconic broadcasters in Cubs history, but it is a Hall of Fame and museum. So I'm with you guys both in saying individual moments or iconic moments that players have can be worthy of the museum portion of things. The Hall of Fame should be limited, of course, to players that were elite baseball players. And um, 
Good to see, though. Derek Jeter, well-deserved. Did he benefit from being a New York Yankee? Absolutely he did. Does it matter? Not one bit. He rose to the occasion throughout most of his career there in New York. And great pride for Larry Walker here in Denver. Something that I think about a lot with this Rockies team is, so they only existed, started playing baseball back in 1993. So you're looking at the second generation of Rockies fans that are growing up with this team now and building a fan base here. This is a milestone for them. Their first player inducted into the hall of fame. It's great. And what a run it's been for Denver here. They get the all-star game. They get the futures game, the home run derby, their iconic player, Larry Walker in the hall of fame. And maybe this opens the door for the Todd Helton's of the world or those next tier of Colorado Rockies players. You know, it's so difficult for Rockies batters because the numbers that they put up will always come with an asterisk of people going, yeah, well you play, at a mile in elevation and you played in that spacious ballpark so yeah you hit 40 home runs but in another park maybe that's 25 home runs you know that type of stuff sort of weighs down offensive players here but cool to see the city rallying around larry walker and i thought it was nice that he had the spongebob pin on his coat a lot of people were talking about the jacket that he wore when he was inducted into the hall of fame but uh or announced that he was getting into the hall of fame for him to have the pin was a touch and my final point on larry walker His case, or you could make the case, that a big part of the resurgence in him getting into the Hall of Fame was because of social media. A lot of people online talking about it, national writers brought their attention into it. He even thanked those fans in his induction speech. So there are players here who have benefited from this crazy interconnected online world right now in social media, and I think Larry Walker is a perfect example of it. There was sort of a rallying cry started here in Denver and up in Montreal to get this guy into the Hall of Fame, and it's good to see him do that. So Jeter and Walker go in. Here's a question, putting you both on the spot. Who will be the next Chicago Cub to be inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame? Any guesses? Boy, that is a a hell of a loaded question. It's probably not going to be Sammy at this point. And, you know, who knows where the careers of Rizzo and Bryant go from here, whether they come back to the Cubs, you know, if they do make it into the hall, would they go in as Cubs? That's, that's a real great question. Great question. I am going to say we haven't seen, we haven't seen the next Cub who will go into the hall of fame as a member of the Cubs. I'm going to say we have not seen them yet. Jeremy. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, probably Craig Kimbrell. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Kimber will go in. I don't think he will go in as a Cub. No, I don't think. He'll but go in I think that answers the question. Yeah, Craig Kimber is a guy who's going to be in the Hall of Fame as one of the great relief pitchers of all time, and and he had a great run, uh, particularly the first half of this season. Just totally lights out with the Cubs. I mean, I would say a role be... to Chapman, but I think he's got too much baggage. Well, who will be the next induction into the Chicago Cubs Hall of Fame? And damn it, is it going to be Sammy? It better be. It, it better be, be Sammy. It should be. But I feel well, like I it could be like a Ramos and Derek Lee or something. That uh, probably so. Um, but a perfect segue Mariano. here. Want to keep the ballot of the 2001 Chicago Cubs going. And the man of the hour today is my guy, Randall, Sammy Sosa, Samuel Peralta Sosa. His best year as a Chicago Cub came in 2001. I got a couple of numbers here that I want to share before we reflect on that magical run that he had. Um, everybody talks about 1998, 66 home runs, the MVP. He was better in 2001. And here's a couple numbers to put that in perspective. 64 home runs for Sammy Sosa in 2001, becoming the first player in Major League history to hit 60 home runs in three different seasons. He did it in 98. He did it in 99. He capped it off one final time 
in 2001. The slash line for Sammy Sosa in 2001, 160 games played. He had a 10 war. He hit 328, a 437 on base percentage. He slugged 737. So the OPS, Jeremy, 1.174. That was the tops in his career. He had the highest walk rate in his career at 16.3. And in 160 games, he has his best season, 10 war. There were no other Cubs offensive players higher than 1.9 war that year. Gutierrez and Eric Young, the two middle infielders. The huge gap, and then Sammy at 10 war. And hard to believe, Jeremy, that incredible season that he had doesn't get the MVP because a guy in San Francisco, Barry Bonds, is setting the single-season home run record. Crazy yeah. year in 2001, but it was Sammy Sosa's best year. Hard to believe that Sammy Sosa, as you mentioned, the first player to hit 60 homers in three seasons, not just the first player to hit 60 homers in three seasons, the only player to hit 60 homers in three seasons and hard to believe in each of those three seasons, he did not lead the league in homers. How crazy is that? And the only time he led the league in homers, he hit like 50 or 49 or maybe led the league twice in homers, but around those. Um, yeah. So Barry Bonds with his 73 home runs going off, uh, Luis Gonzalez had a monster year that year too. And I, and for a while, Luis Gonzalez had more homers than Sammy. Sam, he kind of tapered off and Sammy blew past him. Well, the other thing, just looking at these numbers here that you have written down, um, the 21 and a half percent K rate, it seems pretty low to me for a Sammy Sosa season. Yeah. You know, a nice high uh, batting average of 328. So he was hitting the ball a lot more, uh, making more contact um, for a guy who struck out over 2000 times in his career, you know, one of the all time leaders in that. Uh, so it's just a monster year. One of the uh, greatest baseball seasons, offensive baseball seasons in history, you know, you argue that probably, you know, a guy like Barry Bonds and Luis Gonzalez and other players going off that, you know, offensive production was probably higher that year, but still, still an incredible year. Um, the best year of Sammy Sosa's career. And, you know, that, that stretch just from 98 to 2001, that stretch is just incredible. One of the greatest four year stretches that any player in, will ever have in baseball history. And, you know, another number that jumps out to me, he drove in 160 runs that year, played in 160 games. Imagine averaging an RBI per game. That's that's crazy. Like, yeah. you've got to have the team around you to get on base ahead of you and make that possible. But that's crazy to average a run driven in for every game in which you play. That's crazy. And he was carrying the offense because it's not like there were all these sluggers up and down the lineup. Yeah. Uh, guys had decent years with the Ricky Gutierrez of the world, the Eric Young's of the world. But then Sammy had this monster season. I was looking at the game log today. I didn't know this until I was looking at it. So he played in 160 games that year. Sammy never went more than one game without reaching base. So if he had a game where he went 0 for 4, 0 for 3, in every single instance that year, the next day he at least got on base one time. So 160 games, he reached base in 144 of those games. And so those 16 games that he didn't reach base, there were four or five games in that stretch that he either scored a run or drove in a run. So maybe he goes 0 for 4 with a sacrifice fly. Jeremy, I see you're looking confused, going, how can he score a run without reaching base? Well, he reaches on an error. So if he goes 0 for 4 in the game and he reaches on an error, he can still score a run. So just 16 games that year, Sammy doesn't reach base. In a third of those games, he scores a run or drives in a run via sacrifice fly or a run scored. Remarkable consistency day in and day out. And if you were a betting person back in 2001, Sammy goes 0 for 3 or 0 for 4 the day before, take that bet that he's going to reach base the next day because he did it every single time that season. That is remarkable consistency from a guy who also hit a bunch of home runs, right? Hit more than 60 home runs that year, 64 in total. 
Um, speaking of home runs, he had three three home run games. The first one against Colorado in August at home, another one against Milwaukee at Wrigley in August, and then a three home run game in Houston, September 23rd. He had two home run games seven different times that season, including twice against St. Louis, one at Bush Stadium, one at Wrigley Field. So all in all, you think of 2001, an 88-win team for the Cubs, it was Sammy and some decent pitching, particularly starting pitching, John Lieber, Kerry Wood, but Sammy offensively was the show, and he literally put on a show every night that year, just remarkable consistency night in and night out, and damn it, Tom Ricketts put him in the Cubs Hall of Fame, if for nothing else, the remarkable season he had in 2001. Yeah, no reason that Sammy is not in the Cups Hall of Fame. No. Uh, I will never be uh, on, on this. I don't understand where the Ricketts family is coming from. I, they did not own the team in 2001. Sammy Sosa owes Tom Ricketts, doesn't owe Tom Ricketts anything. Sammy doesn't really, I don't think he really owes the fans anything. There's nothing he did. He The fans loved Sammy. He, he performed for them. Uh, he basically was Chicago baseball in the 90s, at least on the north side, uh, into the 2000s. Uh, things did not end the best way. They were a little acrimonious. They uh, franchise, you know, as they do, they made Sammy the scapegoat as they do have done with many players before him and many players after him. Um, but, you know, he should be back. He should be back in Wrigley. You know, if Kerry Woods says he should be back in Wrigley, he should be back in Wrigley. I trust the guys that were around when uh, Sammy was around. And if those guys say he should be back and they don't have a problem with him coming back, then uh, Tom, then there's nothing Tom Ricketts should be doing. Yes. Uh, you know, if Kerry Woods, the guy who supposedly, you know, busted up his boom box or peed in his locker or whatever after Sammy left, uh, and he's the one saying Sammy Sosa deserves to be back in, in Chicago at Wrigley Field, Sammy Sosa deserves to have uh, be in the Hall of Fame. Then, who is anybody else to argue differently? So I I, I agree with Kerry and bring Sammy back. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. Well, we'll continue looking at the 2001 Chicago Cubs. Um, Want to touch on. One other thing here before we bring this home, um, Saturday, sort of an ominous day here in American history. It's going to be the 20th anniversary of September 11. Um, and I was thinking about that. I was getting sad and, and just thinking back on that day. So many things from that day put me down. But then, Randall, this light hit me. And I said, you know what? There's some good that comes from everything. This fall, Randall, is the 20th anniversary of me meeting you and our friendship blossoming. So you and I met freshman year of high school there at Glenbrook South. So I'm looking forward to you preparing some type of cake or dish that you can make for me in order to honor this 20 year anniversary, Randall, of our friendship. I will make a nice dog cake for Huxley. You can watch him eat it. How's that? Maybe you can write something, you know, a little piece, a poem, an op-ed, I don't know, something to honor it. Uh, also, I would like to point out if we're doing anniversaries on Saturday, there's another anniversary on Saturday. LaTroy. Yes. I was about to say <laughs> it is an anniversary of Latroy Hawkins and his immaculate inning. You know, it, it's yeah. real. It's real funny. You mentioned that immaculate inning that came at the tail end of the 2004 season, if I'm not mistaken, against the yep. Marlins. 9-11. And, and that's a that's a real, real good segue to something I've had in the uh, the hopper here all episode percolated. I had percolating. Yes, Jeremy, uh, as the Reds came into Wrigley this week, fighting for their wildcard lives and the, the Cubs are just playing out the string and the Cubs managed to take two of three. It all seemed very familiar to me. Cubs and Reds playing a series at Wrigley. One team is fighting for their playoff spot. The other team is very much not. And two years came to mind. I'll keep these brief, but 2004, the Chicago Cubs are leading 
the NL wild card, of course, only one wild card spot in the leagues at that time. Uh, the Reds come into Wrigley for four games at the end of September in 2004, September 27th to September 30th. The Cubs managed to lose three or four to that Reds team. That Reds team would finish with a record not particularly uh, noteworthy. They would finish that season with a record of 76 and 86. Cubs would lose three out of four. Uh, one game stood out to me in particular, that being September 30th, 2004. Mark Pryor strikes out 16 Reds. He pitches nine game, nine innings, uh, what would have been a complete game if that team had any offense. He allows one run on three hits, one walk. He strikes out 16 Reds. The Cubs go on to lose by one run in 12 innings. And then 2019, we all remember the Cubs missed the playoffs, uh, a nine-game losing streak at the end of that season that sealed their fate. Games one and two in that losing streak were against the Cincinnati Reds at Wrigley, a game I'll highlight in that series, September 17, 2019. You Darvish with another great pitching performance. He goes seven innings. He strikes out 13 Reds, but unfortunately, he also allows four runs, and the Cubs, again, go on to lose those games. Both of those series, the Cubs were in a playoff spot, maybe the last playoff spot, but a playoff spot nonetheless before the Reds came into town. And on both of those occasions, the Reds leave town with the Cubs either out of the playoff spot or spiraling towards that. So this week felt like a little bit of revenge, just just a little bit of, of vengeance for those two those two series that came to mind. And, you know, if there's any justice in baseball, which there seldom is, but if there's any justice, this will be the Reds spiraling towards that and we can consider the matter closed. But as I said last night, my petty is a lot like a cicada. It will jump out of the ground 15 years later and it'll start screeching in rage and confusion. Yeah, I was at uh, both of those series and uh, I was at the Darvish game and Crane Kenny, it's the next Crane Kenny. And I wanted to see if Ronan remembers. We were at uh, the only game the Cubs won in that series in 2004. I believe it was like a 12-4, 12-5 win. We thought everything was going good. Yep. And then the Cubs lost their next six games until the day that they weren't in uh, uh, contention anymore with the last day of the season when they won, I think, against Atlanta. And Ronan, I don't know if you remember walking back through, you know, on the nice long line to get to the L. We were with your parents, I believe. Yep. Uh, there was some craziness going on there. And then Ronan didn't show up to school for like four days. Yeah, I got a little uh, food poisoning at the ballpark. You know, that was one of the last times I ever ate a hamburger at a Major League Baseball game. And I think my most recent hamburger following that game was at the Futures game this year in Denver. So that's how long it took me to get over food poisoning at Wrigley Field. Yeah, you know, I vividly remember watching one of those Cubs-Reds games in 2004 in our high school cafeteria. Someone had managed to uh, tune one of the televisions to the Cubs game. School was over, hanging around doing one of our myriad extracurricular activities. And I vividly remember, I don't know what game it is, uh, Cubs have runners in scoring position. It would have been a, a big hit. And somebody lines one on a, a white hot bullet right to Sean Casey at first base. The ball ends up right in his glove. Chip Carey shouting, I don't think he ever even saw the ball. And it, it, that just felt like that's how that 2004 season ended with a lot of uh, the infielder not seeing the ball, but it ended up in his glove anyway. The 2004 team won more games than the 2003 team. Yep but they didn't win as many important games as a 2003 team. And I just don't think three years from now, we're going to be doing a, a 20 year anniversary of the 2004 Chicago Cubs. Although there were great individual performances, no more in a Cubs uniform. That will certainly be something we remember, but uh, yikes, that one ended rough. Um, we got a minute here to go as I'm watching Tom Brady, trying to get the bucks back into this game. Bears are back Sunday night. What do we think bears winning this one, Randall? What do you got? <laughs> 
You know, I don't think so. I think the Rams are going to find themselves uh, probably victorious in this one. I think the Bears are going to have a whole lot of trouble containing the Rams and their new quarterback, Matt Stafford, who has to be just ecstatic to be away from the Detroit Lions. He has to feel like a new man. Um, Bears insisting on starting Matt, Matt Nagy insisting on starting Andy Dalton at quarterback, despite uh, a much better option sitting right there on the sideline. I don't think it's going to go well for the Bears. I'm not saying the season is uh, a loss before the season even starts, but I do think week one is not going to be kind to the Chicago Bears. What do you got, Jeremy, the season ticket holder here in the group? I got the Rams, unfortunately. I think the Rams, I mean, we've seen the Bears play the Rams in Los Angeles like each of the last three years, and it hasn't really worked out, and I don't really see it working out again. I, I think that the Rams defense very good, Aaron Donald, and then, um, you know, Matt Stafford's a very good quarterback. I just expect them to put up some points. Uh, and I don't think I, I think Andy Dalton, you know, will try his best. I'm not going to hate on Andy Dalton, but uh, I, I don't foresee that him getting it done against the Rams. And hopefully he can get start off in week two at home, which I will be at against the Bengals. Well, you two Debbie Downers, you got it wrong. Bears are winning game there. Sunday night on a national televised game, and the defense is going to score a touchdown. So whether it. it's a fumble recovery or a pick six, defense is scoring. The Bears are winning. I don't think Andy Dalton's going to be particularly good, but I still think week four. That's when we see Justin Fields take over at quarterback. Uh, but good to see the Bears back here. Also, I'm curious to see that stadium in Los Angeles with fans in it. It's one yep. of the newer stadiums here in the NFL. They played in games there last year in front of nobody. It'd be nice to see that place full. Maybe it'll look a little bit better on TV with people in it. And just nice to see fans in general watching college football the last couple of weeks, watching the NFL right now here Full stadiums, yeah, it makes you nervous with the pandemic and all that, but a slight return to normalcy here to at least see 60,000, 70,000 people watching games again. Yep, definitely. I would love to be out. I will I will love to be out at Soldier Field watching the games. Well, bear down and go Cubs this weekend. The Giants are in town. We'll be back next week after Randall puts down a couple of Philly cheesesteaks, and we've got a couple weeks of regular season to go here, so lots more to talk about. For Jeremy and Randall, I'm Ronan. Thanks for joining us. We're on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. Give us a follow. Send us your hate mail. Randall particularly wants to read it, and we'll see you next week here on Behind the Yellow Line.